Well, today we are in Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 1 and following. And we're going to go ahead and read through the first 18 verses of Acts chapter 11 and come back and look at it in greater detail. So if you have your Bibles, Acts 11, beginning at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same spirit or gift to them as he has given to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, just a reminder of the background here. Of course, Peter had been in Joppa, just as he says here. He had been at the home of Simon the Tanner. He'd gone up there on the roof, and about noon he fell into this trance, and he saw that great vision of the sheet being let down out of heaven, and a voice saying, kill and eat. And Peter, of course, test, believing this was a test, refused to do so, and... Um, the sheet went back up out of heaven, up into heaven. Next thing that happens, as he said here, was that three men appeared, sent by this Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, to the house that Peter might preach to them the message. And Peter, of course, had gone to the house, preached the message. They had received the Holy Spirit, and Peter realized that this was all part of God's great plan to bring the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the peoples of the whole earth, that Jesus was the Savior, not of a particular people, but the Savior of the whole world. And we said last week that this was part of Peter's preparation. Peter, up to this point, was still thinking as a Jew. It was perfectly fine for Gentiles to become Christians. There was nothing wrong with that. But in order to become a Christian, you had to become a what? Well, you had to become a Jew first. And that's the way he had been thinking, and that's the way he had been operating until this occasion. Now, what's interesting is that Peter had already faced persecution at this point in his ministry. Uh, in fact, he was expecting persecution. Uh, Jesus had made it very clear to his disciples that as the world has treated me, so the world is going to treat you. Uh, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And Peter had faced persecution. He had been dragged before the Sanhedrin, the very body that had condemned Jesus to death and crucified him. And Peter had been beaten. He had been ordered, instructed very strictly not to speak any more in the name of Jesus. So we have seen that Peter has faced opposition before. But here it's a little different. In Acts chapter 11, the opposition that Peter faces is not from without. In other words, it's not an unbelieving, hostile culture that is bringing persecution against the church. Peter goes up to Jerusalem, and he is criticized, not by an unbelieving culture, but by what? By the members of the church. Let me tell you, that is the worst and most painful form of persecution. 
Uh, it's been said that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. And to some degree, it's true, isn't it? It is. And that's what was happening to Peter here. The word had spread to Judea that the Gentiles were believing the gospel. Well, that was good news. But the word had also spread to Judea that they were believing the gospel without first becoming Jews, which in their mind was not good news. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, now, if you know, he was up there in Samaria. If he went to Jerusalem, he was going where? If you know the geography of Jerusalem, he was going south. And yet the text says he went up to Jerusalem. Understand that if you were a Jew in the first century, it didn't matter where you were. You always went up to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is built on a hill, uh, so you do, in a sense, go up to Jerusalem. But more importantly for Jews of the first century, Jerusalem was the center of the world. It, it was a place of spiritual preeminence. And so it didn't matter where you were, north, south, east, west, if you were going to Jerusalem, you were always going up, up to the holy city. So Peter goes to Jerusalem, and it's when he gets to Jerusalem that you'll notice here in verse 2, he is criticized. This is no inquiry. They're, they're not asking questions as to why he did this. They're accusing him. They've already made up in their minds that what Peter had done was wrong. They criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Translate, you broke kosher. You broke kosher. You broke the law, Peter. And it's almost as though they were saying, you ought to know better. How many of you like to be criticized? I mentioned a, a movie the last time we were here, Life with Father. And uh, actually, um, one member of this class actually went out and found that movie. I guess he had to find it on YouTube and watched it, and he said it was absolutely hilarious, and it is. It's, it's a great movie, classic old movie. No sex, no violence, no swearing. When was the last time you saw a movie like that? Life with Father. But there's this one scene in the movie, I think it's, it's, it's hilarious, where um, father's in-laws move in, or at least his wife's relatives move in with them for a time. And he's complaining about this. And he's complaining about the fact that they move in like a bunch of gypsies, bag and baggage. And at one point, mother gets very frustrated and she said, Claire, this is not fair. She said, you always talk about your family. Why can't I talk about my family? And father responds, Vinny, that's not fair. He said, when I talk about my family, I criticize them. <laughs> Nobody likes to be criticized. We hate it. And, and what happens to us normally when somebody criticizes us? What's the first thing we do? Do we take that lying down? Even if the criticism is valid. Generally speaking, what's the response to criticism? Well, we put up a defense, don't we? We put up a wall. We make excuses. Nobody likes to be criticized. And Peter is being criticized here. And what I want you to notice as we begin today is how Peter responds to the criticism. Because it's very important. I think it's a, it's a powerful lesson in many, respects, in many respects to Christian leadership. And it's one of the most difficult things for us as believers to do. But I want you to notice the response. Now bear in mind that Peter probably understood where the circumcision party was coming from. Remember, he was going through a major readjustment himself. Up to this point, he had believed, until he saw that vision, until Cornelius sent those visitors. And again, we may, he may have seen a connection between the number of times that the sheet was let down out of heaven three times and the number of visitors that showed up knocking at his door moments later, three visitors. But whatever it is, he recognized that God was speaking. God was teaching him something. And God had been working for some time on Peter. We said that when he went to Joppa, he stayed at the home of who? Simon the Tanner. Now, tanners, in order to tan hides, have to do what? Deal with dead animals, which would have made them ritually unclean. Most Jews would have never done that. 
Furthermore, we notice that Peter invited the visitors into his house as a guest. Most Jews of the first century would have never done that either. They would have met them on the street and had a conversation with them, but you did not allow them to cross the threshold. So God had been working on Peter, and he realized that. God had been gentle with Peter. He had been pulling Peter along slowly. And I think that that helps to explain Peter's response here in Acts chapter 11 to people who were criticizing him. Because the reality is, Peter could have pulled rank on these people. We already know that Peter is what? He's the leader of the apostles, isn't he? At this point, he is the leader of the apostles. When the apostle Paul, and we're going to see this later, goes up to be accepted by the apostles, who does he go to see? He goes to see Peter. When Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus gave who the keys of the kingdom? To Peter. He said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So Peter was the leader of the apostles. And even up until the time of the Reformation, everybody recognized that the bishop of Rome, quote, the successor to Peter, was the first among equals. So Peter was recognized as the leader. And he could have very well said at this point, who are you to criticize me? I'm the leader of the apostles. I was there with Jesus. Did he give you the keys of the kingdom? He gave me the keys of the kingdom. Let's talk about this for a minute. He could have very easily pulled rank on these people who were criticizing him. But he doesn't do it. He responds in a compassionate, understanding, and gentle way. A way that is characterized, above all, I think, by patience. Peter recognizes that if he's going to bring these people along to an understanding of the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel and the message of grace, he's going to have to educate them. Let me tell you, that is the most important thing in the life of the church. In so many ways, educating people to help them understand not simply what we do, but why we do it. That's so important. I've talked about this when we've talked about the passing of the peace. I understand people who are upset about the fact that, you know, you, you pass the peace in the midst of the service and it almost seems as though we're disrupting the flow of the liturgy. But if you recognize that the passing of the peace is actually an ancient custom, now this is not some sort of innovation that appeared with the 1979 prayer book. This goes back a long way. In fact, the New Testament says, greet one another, listen to this, with the kiss of peace which makes Episcopalians particularly uncomfortable. That's just a little too much for us. But this is an ancient practice. And furthermore, where it appears in the life of the liturgy, at the point in the liturgy, is very significant. You'll notice that the passing of the peace always comes after what? The confession of sin and prior to communion. Because that symbolizes the fact that if we want to have peace with God, we've also got to have peace with one another. Isn't that what the scripture says? If you have any problem with your brother, go, leave your gift at the altar, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So the fact that the peace comes at this point in the liturgy, following the fact that we, after we've confessed our sins and prior to communion, it symbolizes the fact that once we have peace with God, we can have peace with one another. And if we have peace with one another and peace with God, then we can come and receive the bread of heaven and the blood of everlasting salvation, but not before. Now, when I explained that to somebody, they came up to me after church and they said, I never knew that. Well, that makes perfect sense. So it was just a matter of what? Educating people. And the apostle Peter understood that. He also understood something else about leadership. Being in leadership means giving up the right to be understood. That's the hardest part about being a leader. It is giving up the right to be understood. There's a difference between cattle and sheep. Any of you have ever seen an old western where they have a cattle drive? How do you drive the cattle in the direction you want them to go? How? from behind with whips and shouts 
That's how you drive cattle, from behind. How do you direct sheep? You lead sheep. Isn't that what we say in the 23rd Psalm? Lead me. The scripture talks about leading me into paths of righteousness, leading me beside the still water. Jesus is the good shepherd. Shepherds lead their sheep. What happens if you try to drive sheep? They scatter. <laughs> they scatter. They're, they're fearful animals. So you have to lead sheep. And those of you who are going to the Middle East with me when you're going to the Holy Land, you're going to see lots of shepherds. And you're going to see that's exactly how they do it. They lead sheep. And here's the interesting thing. Most of the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, when there were many shepherds, we're told, for example, when Jesus was born, the shepherds were out abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks, plural. That meant there, were more, there was more than one shepherd, there was more than one flock. And at nighttime, they would corral them all into one pen. And the shepherd would generally lay down over the entrance, and he was the door to keep the sheep from going in and going out. Hence Jesus' imagery of, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or, I am the gate to the sheep pen. Anyone who comes through the gate is one of mine. Anyone who tries to climb in from another means is what? A robber and a thief. That's the imagery that Jesus had there. But what was interesting was that they would put all of these sheep into one corral, all these many flocks. Now, how did you know which were your sheep and which were somebody else's sheep? Well, of course, the shepherd knew his own sheep. But what he would do is he would call them out, call them by name. Uh, most of the time, shepherds had a particular whistle or a sound that they would make, and their sheep would recognize their voice and follow. But that's how you direct sheep. You may drive cattle, but you have to lead sheep. Well, what's the imagery you find in the New Testament for Christians? It's sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd, which means we're the what? We're the flock. So you can't drive us. If you try to drive people, force people to do things, what are they going to do? They're going to either scatter, they're going to go someplace else and find some church that they want to go to where they'll hear the message that they really want to hear, or they're going to do what? They're going to fight against you. So Peter recognized that if he was going to bring these people along, it was no good to pull rank on them and try to drive them into thinking the right way. It wasn't going to work. He was going to have to lead them. And if you've ever worked with sheep, you know that that entails a great deal of patience because sheep are stupid animals. They are really quite dumb. In fact, this is one of the things that I noticed. Um, we eat at a restaurant, at least we did on the last trip, we were in the Holy Land, at a restaurant, and uh, we were right next to this big field where there were shepherds with their sheep. And uh, there were sheep out there and there were goats. And I learned something looking at sheep and goats. Sheep never look up. They always are looking down. This is one of the reasons why we're told about sheep that wander off. That's why we pray to the Lord, lead us not into temptation. Because what a sheep will do is be obsessed with a little patch of grass. And then, once he's eaten that little patch of grass, he looks for the next patch of grass. And he sort of wanders over to that patch of grass and he eats that. And then he looks over here for another patch of grass and he eats that. And he wanders over here and he eats that patch of grass. And then all of a sudden, he's far afield of the rest of the flock. That's why the shepherd has to keep vigilance. He has to be vigilant and keep watch over his flock because he realizes that that's how sheep operate. Goats don't. Goats hardly ever look down. They will pull up a piece of grass and then they will look all around while they chew it. They're watching out for predators. In that sense, goats are actually much more intelligent than sheep. When we are described as sheep folks, that is not a compliment. It's a description of what and who we are, spiritually speaking. That's the way we are, isn't it? We wander from one thing to the next until we are far afield of God's flock. And when we are far afield of God's flock, then we are in peril. Because what defense mechanism does a sheep have against the predator? 
Nothing. In fact, you'll notice that one of the things that sheep do when they get away from a flock and they're isolated and they're alone, they simply run around in circles, bleeding everywhere. Bah, bah. Hoping that the shepherd will hear and come and retrieve them. This is why Jesus uses this image throughout the New Testament of sheep. The good shepherd is the one who what? Leaves the 99 in the fold and goes out and finds the sheep. Because the sheep, unlike a dog, is not likely to find its way back to the flock. So Peter realizes he's dealing with sheep. He realizes he's a sheep. Jesus had to lead him into an understanding of the gospel, and he was going to have to lead these people into an understanding of the gospel as well. And my friends, that is so true for us. If you are trying to evangelize another person, do not think you will ever be able to argue them into the kingdom of God. Now, apologetics has a very important point, place, I think, in the life of the church. The point of apologetics is to remove scruple and doubt. The point of apologetics is to remove any obstacle to faith. But you cannot force people to believe simply by arguing. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. You have to be gentle. You have to guide them. You have to lead them. And that's what Peter does. And so I want to share with you just a couple of things about Peter's response to this criticism that he received. Look at how he deals with the criticism. The first thing Peter does is he simply explains what had happened to him. He goes through the whole story and explains what had happened to him. That God had performed this great miracle by giving him this vision. That's the first thing he wants to understand. He wants us to understand that, that this is just what happened to me. He doesn't say, well, I've got some sort of divine insight. He said, look, I'm, I was in the same boat that you were in. I think that's so important when you're evangelizing some other person. Sometimes, as Christians, we come across with some sort of superior knowledge. When we are telling somebody that in order to be saved, they need to recognize that they're a sinner, that comes across very clear to the person to whom we're speaking. What does not oftentimes come across to the person to whom we are speaking, that we're sinners. And so we have to be very careful about that, don't we? We have to always include ourselves in that conversation. So what we'll notice about Peter is that he says very clearly what had happened to him. The first thing he says is that he was praying. He makes that point very clear. He said, look, I was praying. Which means that he was probably seeking God's will at this point in his life. What's next for me, Lord? And he was praying. That's the first thing he says, I was praying. So he says, I wasn't out just, you know, walking along the road, and it was a flash of lightning. He said, I was praying. I was seeking God's will. Which tells us that Peter was prepared to follow God wherever God led. That, that's something you must remember as well. That if you say, thy will be done, when God reveals his will to you, you have to be prepared to follow. That was one of the things that I had to come to terms with when I was uh, in my last parish I'd been there, as most of you know, for about 17 years. It had been a fruitful and blessed ministry. But I had reached a point um, where I just sensed that I had done what God had called me to do there. Now, God works in different people's lives in different ways. And for me, I have never had to look for a job. God has always raised up the next opportunity. And I can't say that that's the way he's always worked in everybody's life because he deals with us as individuals. But that's how he's worked with me. And so I wasn't looking for a job. I wasn't looking. I just sensed that I had done what I had come there to do. I didn't know what other opportunities were out there. And I was reticent to go out and search for an opportunity because the human part of me would always search for what? The kind of job that I wanted as opposed to the kind of job that God had in mind for me. Uh, this was true when I became rector at St. Helena's. I had been there for six years under the rector. And uh, well, I'll share this story with you. It's a remarkable story. But God just confirmed how he worked in my life. I had been at St. Helena's for six and a half years as the senior associate under the rector, Frank Limehouse, at that time. And um, a church in Birmingham, Alabama, the Cathedral Church of the Advent, was looking for a new dean. Uh, the former dean, Paul Zoll, had left there. 
and um, they were looking for a new dean, and um, my name had been put into the, to the mix. And it's, it's, it's an interesting story. I hope I don't bore you with it, but here's how it worked for me. And so I was put into this mix, and after six and a half years at St. Helena's, I had a sense that, that, that God was calling me to be a rector again. And so when this opportunity came open, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll be a part of that process. Well, um, about three, four weeks later, after I had been called and agreed to be a part of this process, um, Frank Limehouse, who was my boss, came into the office and he said, I just got a call from the Church of the Advent in Birmingham. And I said, oh, I thought they were looking for a reference. He said, they want me to be a candidate for dean. I said, what? And he said, yeah, I was a little surprised by it. And, and he said, but don't worry. He said, I told them that I was not the man for them, that you were the man for them. He said, so I think you're back in the loop, and I think you're a part of this process. So I thought, okay. So they called me up, and they said, you know, we, we wanted you to know that we were looking at you, and we were also looking at Frank Limehouse. Nothing against you, but you were a little young, and Frank Limehouse had a lot more experience, and so we thought he might be the, the logical candidate to be the dean. But Frank says he doesn't feel called to this, that you're the right man, so we want to talk to you. I thought, okay. So we're back on track, going through this whole process of going through discernment and so forth. And I am, evidently, their primary candidate at this point. So Bishop Salmon comes down to St. Helena's. You all remember Bishop Salmon. Uh, Andrew did a wonderful imitation of him on Ash Wednesday. Bishop Salmon came down to meet with us, and in the course of the conversation, Frank said, well, Bishop, I'm going to be looking for a new senior associate because I think Jeff is going to end up going to the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham. And Bishop Salmon just sat there, and he said, well, how shall I put this? Um, uh, under no circumstances should Jeffrey go to Birmingham. Um, he said, that, that's not the right place for Jeffrey. Jeffrey should not go to Birmingham. Uh, but Frank, you should. <laughs> so that's, that's what he says to Frank Limehouse. Frank Limehouse, what, 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 what? And the bishop said, now, now uh, just you talk amongst yourselves. Where's the restroom? And he got up and he went to the bathroom and left us there. Well... Nobody knew what to say. Nobody knew what to think. And I, I turned to Frank and I said, well, what do you think? And Frank said, oh, gee, I don't know. He said, I, he said, you know, when Bishop Salmon talks, it's almost like it's the word of the Lord. He said, I don't know what to do. And we both discerned that this was the right thing. Right then and there, we realized that the Holy Spirit was speaking through the Bishop of South Carolina, and he was right. Now, the bishop never said, you're going to St. Helena's, Jeff. He just said, you shouldn't go to Birmingham, and Frank should. So Frank and I stepped out on the patio, and we we're talking about this. And then all of a sudden, Frank slaps his forehead, and he said, Oh, Jeff, we got a problem. I said, What's that? He said, I just sent a letter yesterday to the Church of the Advent in Birmingham saying, reiterating all the reasons why you should be the new dean. He said, If I call them up and say, I'm willing to be a part of the process, Two days later, they're going to get this letter that says, no, Jeff Miller's part of the process. He's your man. He said, they're going to think we're crazy. And I said, well, Frank, we can't worry about that. I said, I'll call them up, tell them that I am not the man for them, that you really are the man for them, and, and, and we'll just go from there. And, of course, we thought they are going to think it's crazy and say, we don't want either of those two nut jobs, but... At any rate, that's what I did. I called him up, and I talked to a lady, a wonderful lady by the name of Fran Cade, and I said, Fran, listen, I am uh, not the person to be the new dean. I said, Frank Limehouse is the man you ought to talk to. She said, well, you ought to talk to Frank. He said, he's not interested. I said, I think he's interested now. <laughs> and she said, okay. So they called Frank up and started this conversation. Listen to this. Two days later, the letter that Frank Limehouse sent came back marked insufficient postage. <laughs> It never made it there. I don't know whether it had a stamp or not. I just know the secretary came in and put it on his desk and said, you need to remail this. And so I've never had to look for a job. Next thing I knew, I went on vacation. I needed a vacation after all of that. And so I went to a vacation. I'm at, the, at Charlottesville, Virginia, and I get a telephone call. And I knew Frank was meeting with the vestry that night to tell them that he was leaving. 
And I'm on vacation, and Frank calls me up, and he said, uh, Jeff, this is Frank. I said, how did it go? And he goes, uh, I'll tell you about that in a minute, but the vestry would like to talk to you for a minute. You're on speakerphone. <laughs> and right then and there, they called me to be the rector of St. Helena's. And I was in a bookstore, and I came out. I went into the bookstore. I was a senior associate. I came out of the bookstore, and there was a transformation that took place. I was the new rector. Now, I'd been there for 17 years. And I'd reached a point where, as I had before, 11 years before, where I realized I had done what I'd come there to do. Now, God had something else in mind for me. I knew I was called to be a rector again. I just didn't know I was called to be the rector of the parish where I was serving. And that was the case when it came to St. Philip's. I wasn't looking for a job, and somebody called me up, Mark Phillips. And he said, hey, Jeff, um, we sent you a letter about three weeks ago asking if you'd be a part of the search process at St. Philip's Church. And he said, we never heard back from you. I said, well, I never got a letter. And he goes, we know. We sent it to the wrong address, and it came back. And it's been languishing up here in a box. And he said, we just want to know if you want to be a part of this process. Now, I had been praying to the Lord as I'd been praying before. That if God opened the door, now here's the important part. All of this is trying to make a point here. There it is. The point was, when I was praying for an open door, when I was saying, Lord, I'm feeling called to this, I feel like I've done what I came here to do, the Lord whispered in my ear, Jeff Miller, if I open the door, are you prepared to walk through it? See, it's one thing to say, Lord, if you, if you, if you give me a door, I, I, I want a door. What oftentimes happens is God gives us a door, and then we say what? What's the other door? Well, are there any other options? When you are praying to the Lord for guidance and for wisdom and the Lord presents you with an option, the question you have to ask yourself is, before you see what's behind the door, are you prepared to step through it? That was the question. And so when the opportunity to be a part of the process here at St. Philip's came up, I had already determined that if God opened that door, I was going through. Peter was praying. He was praying for wisdom. Show me, Lord, what is next for me. When God opened that door, the question was, was Peter prepared to walk through it? Because it was going to be shocking. It was not going to be what he expected. What God showed him was that what? The gospel was going to the Gentiles. Now, Peter, are you willing to step through that and accept it? And Peter was willing to do that. I'm not sure what's going on here exactly, but I think I know. I think I, it's my... Um, Turn off the Wi-Fi, that might help, and the music. I'm sorry about this. There we go. Let's hope and pray. But you'll notice that one of the things that Peter was doing was he was praying. And when God revealed to him, Peter was willing to accept that wisdom. He was willing to step through that door. You need to be prepared to follow God wherever he leads. And not say, ah, but... And so Peter was making it very clear. I was praying. I was prepared to follow God wherever he led, and he led in a very dramatic way. Now, for Peter, this came about in the form of a vision. Very few of us are probably going to get visions. This is something that God did for the apostles. I'm not to say that he doesn't do that sort of thing today, but we have something that the apostles did not have. A word more certain is the way the New Testament describes it. We have what? We have the Scripture. You know, people say, I just wish God would speak to me. Have you ever thought that in your own life? I wish God would speak to me. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you listening to His Word? Because God does speak. You have to remember, the apostles wrote the New Testament in large measure because they realized they had a decided advantage over successive generations. They had been with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They saw him perform all those miracles, turn the water into wine, feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two small fish. They saw him do all of those great miracles, but they realized successive generations were not going to have that same privilege, that same opportunity. So what did they do? They wrote it down in a book. 
Charles Wesley and John Wesley were both converted through the reading of this book. John Wesley once said this. He said, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. And he said, thanks be to God, he has shown the way. He's written it down in a book. He said, oh, give me that book and make me a man of that book. So if you're looking for guidance and direction in your life, you're probably not going to get a vision of a sheep being let down out of heaven. But God will speak to you with even greater clarity when you open the pages of his word. So Peter was saying very clearly, he was praying, he was waiting for God to speak, and he knew that God would. And when God did, he reacted to it. He received the revelation. We said for us this would be the scripture. Now turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4 for just a moment. This is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not only does God speak, my friends, in His Word, God also speaks to us in our circumstances. There's an old expression in the theater, timing is everything. And I always tell people, God is in the timing. God is in the timing. And that was the case for Peter. He recognized that God was speaking to him. He also recognized the circumstances. Was it any accident that he had, as he was praying, that he had this vision? Is it any, ac any accident that having had the vision, and as he's pondering it, there's a knock at the door? Is it any wonder then, when he goes down and he meets the visitors, that they are unclean Gentiles who have had a vision themselves, who've been sent to bring Peter to speak to other Gentiles who are unclean. And when Peter goes and he preaches to these Gentiles, expecting that they will become Jews before they become Christians, and what happens is that the Holy Spirit comes upon them all, and they begin to speak in tongues in the same way that the apostles spoke in tongues on Pentecost. When he puts it all together, what? It becomes very clear that this is not an accident, this is not chance, this is not any kind of happenstance. This is what? This is God at work. If you want to know how God leads in your life, He leads primarily through His Word, and He leads through the circumstances and the timing of situations. And so if you're looking for guidance in your lives, that's how God does it. He lays down certain principles, and then He makes the timing just right. And that's how you know it's time to step in to this new role, this new life that God has called you to. So, this is what Peter did. Now, what was the result of all of this? Well, the result of him just leading the people through what God had done in his life was that we're told that the people didn't reject his message. They found it compelling. Look at verse 18. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter didn't pull rank on them. He simply led them through, step by step, what God had been doing in his life. And they had no objection to it. And the result was that the gospel now begins to go out to the ends of the earth. Which is where we pick up now. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Because those first 18 verses set the stage for what is now to follow. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the whole world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his own ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Antioch. If you look at the book of Acts up to this point, you'll notice that Acts chapters 2 through 7 deal primarily with the gospel going to the Jewish people. The gospel is confined almost exclusively to the Jews. When you get to chapters 8 through 10, you begin to see an expansion. Now remember, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said this was going to be the case. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses where? First in Jerusalem and Judea, then to Samaria, and finally what? To the ends of the earth. Well, we've already seen that they've been witnesses in Jerusalem. Then in chapters 8 through 10, we begin to see the gospel going out from Judea into Samaria. We saw Philip go up into Samaria and encounter that Ethiopian eunuch. We see Peter going up to Joppa where he encounters Cornelius and the visitors. And so we see the gospel expanding. When you get to Acts chapter 11, however, what we're beginning to see is that the gospel is going beyond Jewish territory. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as what? Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And so the gospel is now up in Gentile territory. Peter's preparation was in anticipation of that. It was in anticipation of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And in particular, to this church in Antioch. Antioch. One of the greatest churches in the Bible, one of the greatest churches in all of history. I would go so far as to say the church that is, res that is responsible for your presence here today. Because we're going to see later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, it was from this church in Antioch that the Apostle Paul would go out on his first missionary journey. And it was those missionary journeys that would ultimately change the world. This is a remarkable church, and I want to spend a little bit of time looking at it. Uh, first of all, Antioch, there were two Antiochs in the ancient world. Uh, there was Pisidian Antioch which we will encounter later on in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas went to Pisidian Antioch and preached the gospel there, and we'll talk about what the result of that preaching was. But this is the other Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria. So same name, different location, sort of like Beaufort and Beaufort. There's a Beaufort, North Carolina. There's a Beaufort, South Carolina. They're spelled the same way, two different places, pronounced differently as well. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world. We're talking about Antioch in Syria. All right, Antioch in Syria. It was a city that was located on the Orontes River, which made it a major east-west trading post. Major east-west trading post. Now, to the Arabs, who were accustomed to living in the desert, Damascus, was the capital, in their minds, of Syria. But to the Greeks, who focused on the Mediterranean world, who were a seafaring people, this was the capital of Syria, this city of Antioch. It was close enough to the Mediterranean that they could do trading with the major Mediterranean cities. But it was far enough inland that it was ideally located to be a center for the government, a center for the government. And that's what it became. In 323 B.C., Alexander the Great, who had conquered much of the ancient world, died. 
and his empire was divided up into various parcels. And this particular portion, where Antioch was located in the first century, was originally established by one of his generals by the name of Seleucus. And as I said, it was a strategic location. That's why he had chosen it there on the Orontes River. So you can see it. Antioch is over here. This is the Antioch that we're talking about right here. There is another Antioch up there. This is the Antioch that we're talking about. Close enough, as you can see, to the Mediterranean world to do trading, but far enough inland to govern the entire region. So it was a very important location, a highly important city. It was a political center. Eventually what would happen was another one of Alexander the Great's generals by the name of Ptolemy would defeat Seleucus and he would establish his capital here at Syria. At the time that the Apostle Paul and others would visit this place, it had 25,000 residents, which was pretty substantial for a city of the first century. It's a big city, 25,000. It is the third most important city in the Roman Empire in the first century. Third behind what? Well, obviously behind Rome. And what other city? Not Jerusalem. The Romans didn't regard Jerusalem as particularly important. Alexandria. That's right, Alexandria. The three great cities in the Roman Empire at this point were Rome, Alexandria, and number three was this city, the city of Antioch in Syria. It could be characterized by three C's. First of all, it was a commercial city. We've already noted its strategic location. Big business, wealthy, affluent. But it's not only a great commercial city, it is also a cosmopolitan city. Because it was located, because it was this crossroads of the ancient world, all kinds of people lived there. You could find anything in Antioch. It was sort of like Herod's department store. If we don't have it, we'll find it. And you could find anything that you wanted in Antioch. It was very cosmopolitan. It was a great melting pot of all kinds of people. Jews, Gentiles, black, white, Greek, Roman, you name it, they were all there in that great city. Third thing, because it was such a commercial city, because it was so cosmopolitan, as you can imagine, it was also very corrupt. There was a place outside the city called the Grove of Apollo. How can I describe the Grove of Apollo? Uh, it would be what you would call in the 1950s, inspiration point. It, it's where you went. But they weren't going just to be inspired. It was a place that was notorious for sexual immorality. It was right there in the city. In fact, this city was so corrupt that when Rome began to decay, and the Roman citizens, particularly the Roman Senate, began to realize that the empire was decaying and rotting from the inside out. Somebody asked one of the Roman senators what was the contributing factor to the destruction of Rome, its implosion, and do you know what he said? He said, the Orontes River has flowed into the Tiber. In other words, what he was saying is, the corruption of Antioch has found its way to Rome. Now, when I describe for you a commercial, cosmopolitan, corrupt city, what does that sound like? As a Vegas, it sounds like any major city in the world today, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like New York to some degree? Of course it does. Or Chicago, or Paris, or London. Those are great commercial cities. They are great cosmopolitan cities. And there's great corruption in the city. And why is there great corruption in the city? Not because the people there are any worse than the people here. It's just that there's more of them. You put lots of sinners together in one place, and what are you going to get? Lots of sin. That's just the way it is. That's what Antioch was. Now, here's what's odd. You would not expect that the gospel of Jesus Christ would take root in that kind of a place. You would expect that if God is going to take the gospel out to the Gentile world, he would not go to that darkest place. And yet that is exactly what happens. As we're going to, be, as we're going to see as we work through this chapter, 
The, these people were first called Christians where? The followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians where? In Jerusalem? At Joppa? They were first called Christians at Antioch. At Antioch. So it was a very corrupt city. But the gospel came here anyway. How did it come there? Well, Luke tells us how it came here. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. I pointed out to you earlier that this is one of the most remarkable things about the word of the Lord. The prophet Isaiah said the word of the Lord never comes back void. It never comes back empty. And anytime people try to stamp out the gospel message, the only thing they succeed in doing is spreading it. Do you remember that Paul was on his way to Damascus, 110 miles north of Jerusalem, to arrest the Christians and bring them back for trial and execution, feeling that if he could just capture the Christians there in Damascus and bring them back, that would end this whole Christian movement. And while he was going north, what did God do? He took Philip and leapfrogged him over Paul and put him on the road going south. Paul's going north to stamp out the movement. God takes Philip, puts him on the road going south where he encounters the what? The Ethiopian eunuch who then takes the gospel south to Egypt. You can't fight against God and win. Paul had been kicking against the goads. Well, here's a situation where they're trying to stamp out the Christian movement, and the only thing they do is succeed in scattering these believers. And some of them go here to this dark city, to this cosmopolitan, commercial, modern-type city. But when they went, they brought with them into that darkened environment the light of the gospel. And it was a great church that had happened there. We're told that, that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. In fact, the word got back to the church in Jerusalem that something remarkable was happening in, of all places, Antioch. And what did they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. To investigate. Who's Barnabas? Well, we've already encountered Barnabas earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4. He was the man who had sold that piece of property and brought the proceeds and given it to the apostles. And they had nicknamed him Barnabas. His real name was Joseph. He was a Levite. He was from Cyprus. But they nicknamed him Barnabas. We know that he was generous. He was an encourager. And he was a good man to send. I think there's something about Barnabas here that's really quite remarkable. Um, he was a man who was humble enough that he realized that he was going to need help. I'm sort of flying through today's section. I want to get to the end of this. We'll see if we get there. Barnabas gets there to Antioch, and we're told that he rejoiced. When he got there, verse 23... He came and saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted those who were there to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was glad. Uh, he saw that God was doing something here. Now, this was Gentile territory, but he realized God was at work, and so he rejoiced. And he realized he was supposed to go back to Jerusalem and report what he had seen, but he decides not to go back. He realizes that these people need help, and he has been sent there. And he's going to help them. But he also realizes something else. He can't do it by himself. How many times do we think we can do it all by ourselves? You know, I think this is part of our sin nature. Do you ever notice with children that they reach a point where they want you to do everything for them? And then they get to this point where they don't want you to do anything for them. Here, let me tie that. No, I'll do it myself. Do you ever notice that with children? And we never grow out of that. We always want to do it our own way, all by ourselves. I think one of the most remarkable things about Barnabas is that he gets there to this city. He sees the gods at work. He rejoices in that. He's like Peter. He realizes God is doing something new here. He rejoices in it. He realizes that he needs to be an encourager to these people. And by the way, that's part of his nature. He wants to be an encourager. But he realizes he can't do the job by himself. And so he's humble enough to recognize that he's going to need help. Let me tell you, this is so important. 
Did you notice that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a what? A helper. Did you ever notice that when Jesus sent out his disciples, he never sent them out one by one? He sent them out what? Two by two. Because he realized they could not do it alone. Let me tell you something about human beings. We are not like cats. Cats are solitary creatures. But human beings are not. We were not intended to do it alone. I knew when I came here to St. Philip's Church, a church that had 300 years of history, a church that had tremendous potential. Here we are in Charleston, a city that has now become a global city. It's not as big as Antioch, at least by comparison from our day to their day. It's not as big as Chicago or Paris, but it's a city, and you've heard me say this many times before, to which the whole world comes. You walk through the streets of Charleston, you can hear people speaking Chinese, Mandarin. You can hear people speaking French. You can hear them speaking German. You'll find people from, they come to this city. And so here is a church that is an attraction church. People come to St. Philip's, they just want to see what it's like. It's an amazing building. And we have an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. But let me tell you something, that's a big task. And I realized that was a big task. And one of the first things I had to acknowledge was the fact that I could not do it alone. It's one of the things I said to the vestry, and I, I want to thank them. I said, look, I, I, I'm delighted, I'm thrilled, I'm honored, I'm humbled to be able to come to St. Philip's, but I know one thing, I can't do this by myself. And I know my style of leadership. I'm a teacher, I'm a preacher, I'm a visionary, but I need help. And furthermore, I said, I know the guy that I need to help me. Uh, there's this guy named Andrew O'Dell, and I said, I, I need him. I know you've got good clergy there, and I'm sure I'm going to work with him, but if we're going to get moving, if we're going to hit the ground running, I need help. One of the members of this congregation said, they were a little leery about me at first. They said, here was this guy, he was coming from Buford, he had this reputation and so forth, and furthermore, he wanted to bring with him his friend. <laughs> well, I understand that. But I recognized that if we were going to do this, I could not do it alone. Let me tell you, there was a part of me that wanted to say, I can do it all. But I know that that's a sure and certain recipe for catastrophe. It's a sure and certain recipe for fall because pride goes before the fall, and it's a sure and certain recipe for burnout. Well, Barnabas realized he couldn't do it all himself. And so what did he do? He went and he got help. He brought this man, Paul, from Tarsus, who would come and help him in the work. So let's just read through. Uh, give me five minutes with you, and then I'll release you. Let's just finish out this section. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, verse 22, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man wasn't anything about him that was good, but he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's what made him good. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church. They taught, it's very important there, they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Look at how the section ends. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the whole world. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. There are many names that you will find for Christians in the New Testament, for the followers of Jesus Christ. They are referred to as disciples, they're referred to in the New Testament as saints. They're referred to by as believers, as brothers, as witnesses. As a matter of fact, every single one of those five names has already been used in the book of Acts. But for the first time, they are referred to as Christians. Now, what does the word Christian mean? Anybody know? It doesn't mean a follower of Christ. It's more specific than that. It means little Christ. It means a Christ one literally, a Jesus man. That, that's who they are. They're, they're Jesus people. They are Christ ones. They are little Christ. Isn't that remarkable? They've been called all kinds of things, but for the first time in this dark place, in this cosmopolitan, commercial, corrupt city, for the first time they're called little Christ. Christ ones. 
not just good people, not just kind people, not just generous people, but Christ ones. They were called Christians first at Antioch. And notice something else here. We're told that when they heard there was a great famine over all the world, what did they determine to do? Disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living where? In Judea. In Judea. Not to their own people, but to other people. To people they did not even know. This is the first act, recorded act, of charity. Now you say, no, wait a minute, we had acts of charity in Acts chapter 2. Well, we did. But it was a charity that was really in reach. It was confined where? To the believers there in Jerusalem, in their own church. This is the first recorded act of them doing charity outside their own body. For the sake of people they did not even know. And Luke says that's why they were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, the NIV translates this in an interesting way. It says they were called Christians first at Antioch, and I like that. They were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, what that means, obviously, is that for the first time they were called Christians. But if you take it another way, it means that they were Christians first at Antioch. That is to say they were Christians before they were what? Before they were Jews, before they were Gentiles. They were Christians first before they were black or they were white. They were Christians first before they were north or south. They were Christians first before they were Republicans or Democrats. They were Christians first at Antioch before anything else. Let me ask you a question in your own life. Are you a Christian first? Are you a Christian first before all things? When you walk into the polling place on election day, are you a Christian first? Are you a Christian first before you're an American? You know, my grandfather used to always say, America, right or wrong, love it or leave it. I love my grandfather, but I can't say that. I can't say America first. For me, as a Christian, it must be Christ first. Christ first before family. They were Christians first. Let me tell you something, folks. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not to put him in any other position. He must be first above all things. If anything else is first before Jesus Christ in your life, no matter how good it may be, it is an idol. They were Christians first at Antioch, and they were Christians first at Antioch. God grant in our own lives, as we live in an age that is becoming more commercial, you know, you don't have to go to the city to find the things that you want. You can get on Amazon and get it here. And if you've got Amazon Prime, it'll be here tomorrow. It's a commercial world in which we live. It's a cosmopolitan world in which we live. And it is a corrupt world in which we live. And the question is this, when people look at us, will they see Christians first here in Charleston? That's the question we have to ask ourselves today. Christians first. Yes. Yeah, briefly, because I know people have to leave. He did. When he was converted on Damascus, he left and for about 12 years went down to Arabia and so forth, just sort of trying to sort it all out. Then we're told he went up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. But that doesn't mean he stayed there. He presumably went back home to Tarsus, which was his hometown where he came from in modern-day Turkey. Why is he, there's no change. Don't, don't think for a minute, for example, that he's called Saul, and when he was converted, he became Paul. That's not the case. Saul was the Jewish form of the name. Paul was a Gentile, Greek form of the name. Same name, Jewish form, Gentile. So in a Jewish context, he's known as Saul. As he begins to make his way out into the Gentile world, he's going to be used the Gentile version or the Greek version of that name, Paul. 
He was the lead pastor in the church, but he was not the leader of the apostles. That's right. All right, well, let's close with a word of prayer, and we'll let you go. And if you have any other questions, I'm glad to stick around and answer them today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that Peter was a man of patience. And as you prepared his heart, so he was prepared patiently to prepare the hearts of others. And that set the stage for the gospel going, not just to these Gentiles from Cornelius' house, but to the Gentiles and to all the world, even unto darkest Antioch. And we thank you, Lord, that the gospel took root in that darkened environment and that these people understood what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to give sacrificially as Jesus gave. And as a consequence, the unbelieving world looked at them and called them little Christ. Grant that that may be true for us, that in our world, we, in our city, in our spheres of influence, we may be a people who so love Jesus Christ, who so follow hard after him, who are so generous that others may see us first as Christians before all other things. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, thank you.